You can uh, open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1. And in our last study, what we saw is that God desires to impart wisdom to us, doesn't he? He wants to give us good things. He's our heavenly father. He's a good, good father, as we just sang. And he desires to give us wisdom, instruction, understanding, justice, judgment, equity, learning, discretion, and wise counsel. (laughs) I don't think you can add anything else to that. that. Everything that we need, he wants to provide for us. And we saw also that this kind of wisdom, it starts, it begins with the fear of the Lord. It starts with having a right understanding, a right reverence for God, which will lead to an intimacy with him through the fear of the Lord. And as I was thinking about this, this is not something that's just Old Testament. I know Proverbs, we're looking at Proverbs, and that's an Old Testament book. But when you look at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, you see that the fear of the Lord is actually a major theme in that, in that portion of Scripture. Um, right at the beginning on Pentecost, we see that fear came upon every soul. Remember Ananias and Sapphira and their, their hypocrisy And we see through their death that great fear came on those who heard. Uh, In Acts 5.11, it says, So great fear came upon all the church. Acts 9.31, they walked in, in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 19.17, it says, Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. In fact, Paul would say to the church in Corinth that we would be perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. So, In the New Testament church, the the church that was born at Pentecost, we see that the fear of the Lord was present as God was pouring out his spirit, as he was multiplying the church, as he was performing miracles through the apostles, as people were getting saved, there was this incredible experience of God's, uh, of this fear that, that people understood that God was present. It wasn't just a history lesson. It wasn't just facts. It was the living God was present amongst his people, which provided them with a healthy reverence for him. And this fear of the Lord, it it caused the early believers to have a right understanding of God, and it also impacted their walk, their everyday walk. I believe they understood God was present. You know, if we had this perspective, we realize he's everywhere. He's omnipresent, we say. We, we realize that from a theological perspective. He's everywhere. But it's when believers recognize that he's everywhere. In our everyday life, it changes the way we live, doesn't it? Because we realize he's, he, he sees everything. And having this perspective is so important for us as believers. Uh, A.W. Tozer, in his classic, The Knowledge of the Holy, in the very first chapter said this. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact of any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. 
And so what he's saying is the most important thing from our perspective is our view of the Lord. If we miss him, just like we saw in our last study, if we miss the fear of the Lord, we miss the whole book of Proverbs. It's the beginning. It's the door that we're going to go through as we study this. Now, tonight we're going to enter in a new section of the book of Proverbs that will run through Proverbs 9.18. So we're going to be in this section for a, a little while. And let's begin our study in verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Where it says law there, uh, some translations might say teaching. The word in Hebrew is Torah. And so the idea is that the mothers would teach the children the Torah, the law, and therefore he's bringing that to our forefront here. Notice also the word here. We talked about this last time. The word here for the Hebrew also meant to listen attentively, and therefore you're going to obey what you're hearing. And so it was, it was active listening. Hear the instruction of your father. And, and he lists here both the father and the mother, which was unique in this culture. Because in this culture that Solomon lived, the pagans around them would have said, honor your father. But absent was the desire to honor your mother also. And so this set apart the Israelites from the pagan nations, the, the respect, the honor of the mother in the household. Now, the rest of Proverbs, the mother will never speak, though. It's always the father who speaks. And the idea, I believe, is that ultimately the father is the, the head of the household, the authority, and the, the wife is underneath his authority. And so as she speaks, it's as if he's speaking. And so we'll see the father is speaking to his son. And, and you know, you don't have to be specific here, even though this is addressed to son. It's addressed to really all of us, to any child, male or female, and any adult, because we can all learn from God's word, regardless of our age. In fact, I've learned a long time ago, age has nothing to do with maturity, amen? amen. You can go to a nursing home and you can see an 85-year-old man acting like a four-year-old, uh, or you can see a 10-year-old very, very mature in the things of God. So age is not necessarily a sign of maturity. And notice he tells us here, not to forsake the law of your mother. It means do not leave her teaching unattended or uncared for. It's like that book that accumulates dust upon it. And he's saying, don't forget these things that he wants to impart. And how we need this today, because when you look at our society, rebellion is everywhere, isn't it? When you look at uh, how children many times treat their parents today, and, and, and our society actually encourages it. You know, in many school districts, kids have more rights than parents, where kids are allowed to maybe have an abortion without parents noticing or being notified. Uh, there's a movement allowing children to have sex changes without parent, parental notification. So there is a, a, a current in our society that is trying to take away this authority that God has given parents. And it's a spiritual battle. It's not a battle with the school board. It's not a battle with uh, even the state. The battle ultimately is spiritual. Because when God says something is good, we know the enemy wants to come along and he wants to destroy that which is good. But this is something that we are facing here in America today. And Paul, if you recall to Timothy, reminded him that in the last days, perilous times would come. 
And if you recall, one of the things that he would state that would define the last days is that children would be disobedient to their parents. And that is a, that is a summary of our culture that we're living in. And so we need to heed these instructions. I would encourage you, whatever maybe children that God has placed in your life, whether they're yours biologically or whether they're yours at church here uh, or family, you know, we need to be passing this down to those in the generation after us because they're not going to get it from the world. They're not going to get it from their schools or from their teachers. They're not going to get it from their peers, as we're going to see today. And so God calls us to teach the children. He calls us to lead them, to guide them into wisdom. And now in verse 9, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. And this, of course, is the son, the child, who hears the instruction of his father and does not forsake the law of his mother. And when it says that he's going to have this ornament on his head and these chains around his neck, the idea is there's going to be this attractiveness to this person, especially with the backdrop of the rest of society where you have kids cursing out those in authority, cursing out their parents, having no respect. You know, I wouldn't want to be a teacher today, to be honest with you. As I talk to teachers, so often they, they, they tell me it's horrible because there's no respect anymore. And in fact, when you try to hold children accountable many times, uh, you're getting blamed for trying to do that. You're the problem. And so the, the, the child or the, the person in general, forget about if being a child, the person in general who listens to those over them who respects those over them, are going to be so different. There's going to be this attractiveness to this person who heeds wisdom. They're going to be honorable, and they're going to adorn it. Remember when we finished in Titus, he encouraged us to adorn the doctrine of God in all things. Same principle here. Same principle. But the problem is this. There's going to be forces vying for the attention of the youth away from the parents. And, and Solomon already acknowledges that. Notice verse 10 now. He's going to begin what we might refer to as a sermon or a lecture. And especially as a, as a youth, <laughs> probably the last thing you want to hear is a sermon or a lecture from dad. But that's what he's going to give us. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And so from right off the bat, Solomon tells us the power and the warning of peer pressure. And what we're going to see as we go through this section in Proverbs is he's going to hit the big things. Peer pressure, illicit sex, fast money, drunkenness, things that give instantaneous gratification. Things that feel good right away. And you don't have to wait. There's no patience involved. There's no character that needs to be developed. Anyone can have this, quick and easy. And, and the idea is, as we, we're going to look at this text, this is life without the fear of the Lord. You know, if you don't have the fear of the Lord, anything goes. You can live life as you please. In fact, if there is no fear of the Lord, you might as well live for pleasure. Because if that's all we got, you might as well feel good for as long as you possibly can. And so this is sad. This is living without the fear of the Lord. But here's the sad part. That the people, the, 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 the sinners that we're going to see here are deceived. 
because the things that you get from these instantaneous forms of gratification are actually copycats. They're cheap imitations of what God wants to give to his children. Just as one quick example, you probably remember in Ephesians, it says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, or keep on being filled with the Spirit. One of the things I believe that that verse, Ephesians 5.18, I believe it is, teaches us is that being drunk with wine, first of all, it ruins your life. And we don't need anyone to tell us that. But number two... Notice how he compares it to being filled with the Spirit. I believe being drunk with wine is a cheap imitation of what God wants to do with his Spirit. Think of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Joy. You know, why do people turn to alcohol so often? Well, I want to have a good time. I want to enjoy. Or I want to drown my sorrows. Peace. And so the ways of the world, these cheap imitations, these these things of instantaneous gratification that the sinners are going to entice people with are just cheap imitations of what God really wants to do in our lives. That's the sad part. We're duped when we give in to this type of temptation, and Solomon's pointing that out to us. And, and also notice, when enticed, he's encouraging the youth to, to not go any further. In other words, don't test the boundaries. Because there's a rule that I've learned in life, and that is this, that seldom do people rise above the company that they keep. Another way of thinking about it is that we become like the company that we keep. And Paul exhorted the, the Corinthians, who definitely needed to learn self-control. He said this, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. The idea is, if you have good habits, you must be doing something well. Maybe you're like this son who he's trying to exhort, where you've heard the word of God. You develop good habits. You see this with children all the time. They go to church, they develop good habits, and then they go to college away from parents, and all of a sudden, the evil company that surrounds them causes them to leave behind the good habits that they've developed. There's a saying in the streets, if you sit in the barber chair long enough, you'll get a haircut. And it's true, if you put yourself in the wrong position, if you allow sinners to entice you, you will ultimately give in to your peers. And this is why as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, church family, we have to be on top of our kids, who they're hanging out with. Who are their peers? Are the peers encouraging them to live a life after Christ? Or are they dragging them, dragging them away? In fact, I believe that's the ultimate litmus test of life. You know, as Christians, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. But it's about relationship. And the question we always have to ask ourselves is this. Does this draw me closer to Christ? Or does it pull me away from him? It's not a bunch of do's or don'ts. It could be a good thing. But does it draw me away from the Lord? And that's his concern here. When sinners entice you... Do not consent because he understands the danger of this type of peer pressure. In fact, his father David actually began his psalms with the same thing. Remember Psalm 1? And him warning how blessed is the man who heeds not the counsel of the ungodly, right? Or sits, or, or, or you know, he, he points to the peer pressure in Psalm chapter 1, also in Proverbs chapter 1. So this is a big deal, both in their time as well as ours. And so now in verse 11, we're going to see in verses 11 through 14, uh, 
the father is going to give an example now to his son. And it's very graphic. In verse 11, if they, that's the sinners, say, come with us. Let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions and we shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. And you see here the gang, right? You see here the camaraderie of this group of you, you could almost call them thugs. I think that's what they are here in the text. And, and, and the point is it uses language that this, that it just is like this welcoming language. It uses us, we, come with us, be with us. It's trying to include this person into this family, if you will, just as a gang sort of welcomes someone into the gang and initiates them. Um, the point is that sinners love company. And it's no fun to sin alone, is it? You have to have people join you. And it's especially tempting for those who do not have meaningful relationships. Those who don't have the Father who takes the time to expound on these things. And we have a whole load of fatherless homes today in our society. And you have youth who are welcomed by the wrong crowds. And they find this kind of fellowship. They find this thing that they think they've been looking for. Again, it's a cheap imitation. Fellowship's supposed to be godly. It's supposed to draw us together in oneness to the Lord. It should provoke the fear of the Lord in us if it's God's design as we saw in the book of Acts. And so there's this, this danger for those in fatherless homes. And notice that it points out something here very graphically. Notice that it shows us in verse 11 that the people who this gang is going after are innocent without cause. They're innocent. They're innocent victims that are going to be brutalized and killed all because they want something from them. And it's a single person in verse 11. Notice it says, for the innocent without cause. But then when you get to verse 12, Notice it changes, let us swallow them. So it changes from singular to plural at this point. In other words, it's not an isolated incident. Chances are this gang has been doing this for a period of time. And you know, you, you are tempted to do something. The first time you're usually tempted to do it, it's pretty hard, isn't it? You know, your conscience is convicting you, you know you shouldn't do it, you're sweating, you're nervous, maybe you're remembering what people told you and warned you, and then you do it. And then something begins to happen to the conscience where it begins to just dull, and pretty soon we don't hear that same voice anymore. And it becomes easier and easier the second time, the third time, the fourth time. What we see here, there's many victims. And it's a progression that takes place. And that's what sin is, right? It starts small and it ends big. And we're going to see, there's again, this camaraderie. We see that, that they want you to uh, cast your lot among them. We're all in this together. We're going to share what we get, whatever it is, the spoils, as they uh, kill this person so they can probably break into their house. And so verse 15, we're going to see the Father's warning now as he showed us that example of sinners enticing Notice verse 15, my son, 
Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. Notice that he's not warning about the son's intention here. In other words, perhaps this son thinks that he can hang around this gang and not do what they're doing. But he doesn't talk about his intention because the father understands at this point that the intention doesn't even matter. Once you give consent, it doesn't matter what your intention is. It matters what path you're on. Let me give you a quick example. If, if you want to go drive down to Florida from New York and you get on I-95 North, you can have all the intention in the world to go down to Florida. But if you're on the wrong path, the path dictates where you go, no matter what you want to do. And, and the language that he's using here, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. He's talking about now actions, not intentions. Intentions are already gone out the window when you consent to do what we know is wrong in the Lord. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Notice also, it began by just consenting and them saying, come with us. They were going to lurk secretly. But now in verse 16, we see this progression of their feet now running to do evil. In other words, this path is downhill. It's walking down the path that turns into a full-blown run. And a little leads to a lot. And what begins by being in control ends by being out of control. It's just like addiction. It starts with a little bit. And that little bit leads to more, which leads to more, which leads to more, which leads to more. And that's why Jesus said, if we sin, we're a slave to sin. Because it always, it always leads you to more. Why? Because the little bit's never enough. We're never satisfied with the taste of sin, are we? You know, sin leaves us thirsting for more. And for a while, sometimes the consequences aren't that big at first. And we think, well, this isn't that big of a deal. Nothing bad's happening. No one will know. But pretty soon as you follow that path, you end up in a place that you never dreamed you would end up. And then you look at yourself and say, how in the world did I get here? It's like being in the ocean and all of a sudden you're drifting, drifting, drifting slowly. And pretty soon you're so far out, you look back at the beach and you can't believe. Now you have to hurry up and try to get back into the shore or else you're in trouble. And so what begins by being in control ends up being out of control. For their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. They're eager to do this. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Okay, he's giving us now just an example from nature. And the way that God has equipped birds, he's given them enough wisdom to know if they see you set the trap, they're smart enough not to get into it. Right? You, you might call them bird brains. Usually we use that term not in a good way. But birds have enough wisdom that when the trap is set, they know to avoid it. Yet, notice but in verse 18. He's going to contrast now the bird brain with this gang of sinners. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. Okay? In other words, they're worse than the bird brain. Because they've set this trap, and they end up catching themselves in it. 
It's kind of like those old cartoons when you watch, you know, the, the coyote trying to catch Roadrunner, right? And he sets up this elaborate trap, and every single time the coyote ends up trapping himself. That's what's happening here with the sinners who are enticing and running after this pleasure that they're running after is they don't realize it. It's going to cost them their very lives. Verse 19, so are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. In other words, this is greed and its fruit. And like a grave, it's never satisfied. Greed causes us to see people as obstacles or means to our desire. Right? And either we use people to get what we want or we dispose of them. When greed is a motivating factor of our hearts, we want what we want, and whatever we got to do to get it, we are determined to get it. Isn't it an ugly thing in our hearts? When you think about greed and what greed, the, the suffering that greed has caused in this world, the, de- the desire of it and how wicked it is. One commentator said, sinners love wealth and use people. Saints love people and use wealth to help others. And again, think about it. What a difference between the person who hears the instruction of the father, who listens and does not forsake the law of the mother. What a difference that person is who obeys the word of God versus those who seek pleasure out of greed. It's such a contrast, isn't it? And just like sin, it promises us life, but it brings death. And so we see here in this section the danger of listening to the wicked. Now we're going to look at the danger of not listening to God as we begin in verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. Notice that wisdom here is personified as a woman. She. And I believe part of that is because when you think of a woman, you think of beauty. You think of genuine attractiveness. There's something about a woman that is, that is alluring in a good way in the Lord. And you see here that this woman, as she is wisdom, cries aloud. Notice that it's open truth. It has nothing to hide, unlike those who are usually doing the things that we just learned about. That it's open. She is in the open squares, the chief concourses, the openings at the gates. In other words, these are public places where many people are going. It's for everyone. This wisdom, she cries aloud, and she's also in these public places versus, say, narrow streets. You know, when some of you go to Jerusalem in the future here, when you go to Israel, you're going to go into these very narrow places, these alleyways and places where they're selling things. But that's not where wisdom is crying. Wisdom's crying in the open square, not in the alleyways, not in the schools for the privileged people, and not in the palaces of kings. Rather, this is public. This is something that, in other words, God wants everyone to hear. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, everyone passing by, wisdom is speaking to And verse 22, notice her response here. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. And so we see here three groups of people, though wisdom is really only speaking to two of them, I believe, because the other, wisdom is only speaking to one of them, because the last two have already gone. 
They've already decided. They've made a decision to reject wisdom. So wisdom at this point is trying to get the attention of what we see here as the simple ones, right? You know, it's kind of like I've heard missionaries say in Europe that the adults are just gone. And many missionaries have just put their effort in trying to reach the children, the simple ones, because hearts have become so hardened to the gospel, to the Lord and his wisdom. And here, wisdom is trying to get a hold of the simple ones. And these are the young, naive ones who lack wisdom. They lack life experience. The scorners are those who don't want to hear. In other words, the scorners are the ones who say, well, here comes the Bible thumper. (laughs) I'm not going to listen to a word that this person says. The fools are those who won't listen to wisdom, and they despise it. They've been spoken to before and before and before, and they want it their way. And I believe what, what the wisdom is trying to show us here is that there's this progression that will take place for the simple. There's no neutrality when it comes to the wisdom of God. That if you remain simple, you're going to become the scorner. You're going to become the fool. It's a progression that takes place as the heart becomes hardened to truth. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing, the way God's created us, that with our hearts, we're able to accept or reject his word and wisdom. And the heart has the ability to shut itself off from truth, to harden itself to the point where truth has no impact whatsoever. It's a terrifying thing, isn't it? You know, as Christians, we should be coming every time we get to the Lord's word and say, Lord, search my heart. Lord, soften my heart. Let me receive what you have for me. And you would think that God would write these people off. But notice verse 23. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you, and I will make my words known to you. Even in the midst of the rejection of wisdom up to this point, you see God's heart in this, don't you? And he's calling for repentance. He's calling to turn away from those things of sin and to turn to him. And it's his desire. Remember, wisdom's calling out to everyone. It's his will that we would receive his wisdom, even though the majority of people won't. Even though the majority are going to be fools and scorners and even a lot simple, God's desire is for us to turn to him and he will pour out his spirit. Verse 24, because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. And when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, Wow. The consequence of the refusal of wisdom. We see here wisdom will laugh and mock. Now, what does that mean? Wisdom will laugh and mock. In other words, what has happened is this. The simple person who wisdom was trying to get after would not listen. And when we don't listen to God's word, when we don't listen to his wisdom, what is always going to happen? Bad things, right? Consequences. And so when the bad situation occurs for not listening, and in our text it's called calamity, terror, 
Notice he likens it to a storm and the destruction of a whirlwind. This is powerful language meant to evoke something, showing us the severity of rejecting God's wisdom. And as you go through this horrible situation, what's going to happen is you're going to hear wisdom in your head. You know, maybe this happened to you practically. Someone told you not to do something and you did it. And as you're suffering the consequences for what you did, that person's voice is in your head of what they told you beforehand not to do. And so in a sense, wisdom is mocking you at this point. And you're saying within yourself, why didn't I listen? And that's wisdom mocking, haunting. And also, it's not just that, but wisdom will rejoice at the triumph of what is right. Wisdom will rejoice at the triumph of what is right. I love this quote by Bruce Waltke. He said this, In sum, wisdom rejoices in turning the present upside-down world right-side up. When wisdom overturns folly, righteousness outs wickedness, knowledge overcomes ignorance, humility topples pride, and life swallows up death. And so wisdom rejoices even in those calamities, because it's showing us that God's ways are always right. And when he warns us about something, what he warns us about will happen. His word will not return to him void. We usually look at that in a positive light, right? As Christians, we look at that and we say, thank you, Lord, your word will never return to you void. Thank you that we can trust in your word. You realize many times that word is actually warnings about calamity, about judgment, and so wisdom rejoices with the truth. Wisdom rejoices when things go the way that the Lord will, says that they'll go. And notice here, the person who's in the midst of that calamity for not listening to wisdom, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated Knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. The ultimate consequence of not listening to wisdom is death. Those who listen, to the wicked, counsel will die. And those who refuse to listen to godly counsel will also die. In other words, you reap what you sow. And how tragic this portion of scripture is. The amazing fact is this. I want to close with this tonight. There is one truly innocent man who walked this earth. And we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly obeyed his father's instructions. Yet a bloodthirsty mob brutally murdered him. And we all, the simple ones, the scorners and the mockers, the fools, hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, and when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And his message is to be proclaimed publicly, amen? So that all will hear. And that's what God has entrusted us with. That is the ultimate message that wisdom is proclaiming, is that there's one who took our place. Those who reject him will go to everlasting punishment. And the words that we read in Proverbs are eternal to those who reject the truth of the Son of God. But those who receive him by faith will have everlasting life. And in verse 33, but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you and your word give us a choice, Lord, to choose life or death, Lord, to choose wisdom or folly, to choose your word or to choose lies, to choose your son or to choose the enemy. Father, we have a choice, Lord, and how incredible that is, Father, that our hearts have the ability to receive or reject you. And so, Father, I pray if anyone is here tonight who does not know you, Lord, I pray that you'd open up that person's heart to see their need for you and the salvation that you offer through Christ. Lord, as believers, we pray that this message would impress our hearts to reach out to those, Lord, who are simple, to those who are wandering and going by the wayside, Father, that we would share the good news with them, Lord, that you've made a way to forgive us of all of our sin. We thank you that Jesus took our place, Lord. He was the one who was betrayed. He was the one who was crucified by wicked people. And he did that for us, Lord. We thank you and we praise you for the cross. May you transform our lives, Lord, by your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.